Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. Glad you can join me as we together study the Come Follow Me lesson for November 23rd through the 29th. And this week we will be discussing Ether chapters 12 through 15. Well, I hope no matter where you are in the world that you're staying safe uh, from the coronavirus, at least as safe as possible. We in Hong Kong have had uh, a small uptick, but it was significant enough that we decided to cancel church today, unfortunately. So we had sacrament meeting uh, last week here, but uh, this week we're back to uh, no meetings and who knows what uh, next week will bring. So Frustration continues pretty much everywhere. Hopefully we'll uh, get through this soon. Well, pe- speaking of uh, frustrated people, we'll continue to study the words of Moroni today and uh, the words of, uh, or at least the, the story of Ether, uh, who is a, uh, the last of the Jaredite prophets. Of course, he's the one that the book of Ether is named after. Uh, he was truly a, a very mighty and powerful prophet. Um, and he's also... It's him that we have to thank for uh, providing the, the Jaredite plates that were later discovered by the people of Limhi and translated uh, by the people of uh, Mosiah. So uh, we get to read about him, some of his prophesyings, and we also get some great teachings from Moroni today, uh, teaching us about faith uh, in particular and, and what it means to have uh, faith and uh, what, what we have to do in order to show our faith and what can we, we can expect from that faith. So, first of all, uh, we're going to introduce the character of Coriantumur. Uh, He is the last of the Jaredite king, but we are not told who he is a descendant from. Uh, But we know that Ether is the son of Coriantor, and Coriantor was the actual rightful king, um, but he dwelt in captivity uh, for all of his life. And so, uh, Coriantumur then, who is the actual king, uh, would therefore have an interesting relation, one of two interesting relationships with uh, Ether, the prophet. So either Coriantor, who is the Jaredite king, uh, is the descendant of the man who took over the throne from Ether's grandfather, whose name was, looks like Moron, <laughs> Moron. Um, he took over the, the throne from uh, Moran, did Coriantor's uh, grandfather, or one of his, someone in his line. Uh, so either, you know, family rivalry going on here is the relationship between Ether and Coriantumur, as their families had been fighting for the thrones for many generations. Or, if uh, Coriantor, uh, sorry, Coriantumur is in fact the rightful heir to the throne through the line of the brother of Jared, actually, all the way down to uh, Coriantor, uh, who is also Ether's father. So it's possible uh, that these two are brothers, actually, Ether and Coriantumur. 
Um, but regardless, it, it, you know, it's interesting because Ether, not only being a prophet, he is the rightful heir to the throne. Uh, it's just that his father was in, uh, was in prison uh, all the days of his life, and so he didn't get to enjoy that throne. So either he got it back rightfully, making uh, Coriantumr and Ether brothers, or uh, he, Coriantumr is the king because his grandfather or someone before him uh, had kicked out Ether's father. So interesting dynamics somehow going on uh, between these two men. Uh, regardless, Ether is a prophet, and like all prophets, he teaches repentance. That is his message. He calls for the people to repent, to have faith in God, to believe in Christ. Uh, and if they do, he promises they will be saved. And not surprisingly, he says, if you don't, uh, then you not only will not be saved, but you will be destroyed. And so, uh, and of course, Ether is rejected by them. And so he, interestingly, he steps aside and takes this very unusual position where he's this, just a silent witness to this destruction all around him. He, he hides in caves. He, he witnesses these amazing, enormous battles that are going on. And then he writes it down. Um, and, and is, again, this kind of off to the side, this witness as to everything that is going on. Occasionally coming down, uh, telling kings to repent. Uh, he is rejected and ignored by them, so he goes back in hiding and continues his job of uh, writing down and witnessing firsthand the history of, of these people being destroyed. Uh, let's jump to chapter 12, verse 3 then. For he did cry from the morning even until the going down of the sun, exhorting the people to believe in God unto repentance, lest they should be destroyed, saying unto them that by faith all things are fulfilled. So several interesting things to note here. Um, he teaches them to have faith in God, and it's explicit, to believe in God unto repentance. Okay? So it's more than just believing in God. You know, believing in God is a critical first start. But we need to more than believe in God. We need to believe in God unto repentance, which means more than just belief. That means you're actually aligning your life, bringing your life, bringing your actions in accordance with what you believe that God wants you to do. So we have to align our actions with our belief. And that's what Ether is teaching them to do or trying to, to not just believe in God, but believe in God unto repentance. And in the third lecture of faith uh, that was given uh, reportedly by uh, Joseph Smith, the, uh, he mentioned several things that uh, rational, intelligent beings must do, uh, must believe in order to actually believe or have faith in God. And the third one is, uh, you must have an actual knowledge that the course of life which he is pursuing is according to God's will. So Joseph Smith was very explicit about this. If it's not just believing in God that actually uh, constitutes faith. You can't just believe in God. Faith is more than just a belief. It also includes knowing that uh, the life that you're living, that the things that you do are in accordance with God's will. It's repentance. It's doing what God wants you to do. It's not just believing, it's actually acting upon those belief. 
Um, and then so Ether tells them, you got to repent. you got to live according to how God wants you to live. And if you don't do these things, you will be destroyed. And it is by faith that all things are, are fulfilled. And then we jump to verse 4, which is a, a, a rather common or famous verse. Wherefore, whoso believeth in God might with surety hope for a better world, yea, even a place at the right hand of God, which hope cometh of faith, maketh an anchor to the souls of men, which would make them sure and steadfast, always abounding in good works, being led to glorify God. So I, I love this idea that uh, who believeth, believeth in God might with surety hope for a better world. Now, I believe... Everyone hopes for a better world. The question is, where is that world that you are hoping for? Are you hoping for a better world here only? Or is your idea of a better world somewhere further off? Is it after we have left this life? And then Moroni gets specific here, right? He says, uh, hope for a better world, even a place at the right hand of God. So clearly Moroni is not just talking about making this world a better place, but he's explicit that the world that we should be hoping for that is better is at the right hand of God. It's in the world to come. That is where our hope should be centered. That should be our destination. And so, in some ways, that means we shouldn't take this life too seriously. Um, and, you know, in some ways, that's what all the fighting among the Jaredites can be attributed to that, is that they are so focused on making this world the way they want it to be, that it's clear that that is where their hope is. It is only in this world. Otherwise, why would you spend time fighting and killing each other if it wasn't because you were so focused on making this world the way that you want it to be that you were willing to do extreme things in order to get it that way? Because your focus is so much on the things of this world. And we can see that playing out uh, in our own society as well. If you think of uh, certain ideologies that... Uh, wholesale reject the idea of God. Uh, you know, having being someone who's always loved China for a long time, I'm, you know, fascinated by by communist ideology, uh, and one of its basic tenets is, uh, you know, especially Marxist communism, is that, you know, it's an atheistic idea. It does not believe in God. It is a this world only ideology, and it. And it dreams of this communist paradise idea uh, in which all things will be held uh, in common uh, through the state. Uh, and then it even goes into detail about how describing how this is going to, how this is going to actually play out. At least that's what uh, Marxist, I, Marx's, uh, Karl Marx's ideas were. But it was so focused on this world and we can see that that focus on this world and this you know, the paradise, this ideal situation that they thought was going to come in this world is completely devoid of any recognition or appreciation that there is a world to come. They're so focused on this world that they are willing to do anything <clears throat> to bring about that paradise. And as a result, 
millions upon millions of people have, have died because those who espouse this ideology are so focused on bringing it about that to them, any means can, or can be justified because the end that they are pursuing is a noble goal. And that is one of the dangers when you are so focused on the things of this world and when your hope is it, your hope for a better world is a hope for this world only. <clears throat> we as followers of Jesus Christ, of course we hope this world becomes a better place and we do all that we can to make it that way. But at the same time, our eventual hope is not in this world. Uh, you know, other than the idea that we do believe that the earth will be renewed and become paradise. But there's certain events that have to happen that we really have no control over. That is all done through the power of God. Our hope is in a future world. It's not in here. We don't have plans to take this world and make it perfect. Therefore, it is not the case that any horrible means are just or any horrible means can be justified because we're pursuing some spectacular uh, you know paradise that's going to come about in this world. Our hope is for a better world, even at the right hand of God. That is where our hope is focused. And so uh, so we, we talk about uh, the relationship then between uh, hope and faith. As it, as it talks about, you know, which hope, hope for a better world at the right hand of God cometh of faith. So, so what is the relationship between faith and hope? <clears throat> this hope comes about because of faith, we are told. Well, the way I like to, the way that makes sense to me, and I've explained this before, is that I think of faith as trusting the map, but hope is trusting in the destination. And so if you think of, you know, going on a journey, you have your end in mind, you have your goal in mind. And we as followers of Jesus Christ, our goal, our end that we have in mind is that we will one day return to the presence of God, that we will return to be with our heavenly parents on the right hand of God. That is where our hope is. That is the destination where we want to go. Have any of us seen that, or at least in mortality, to the extent that we're able to remember it? No, we haven't. We trust that that is true. We have promises from prophets who we believe that that is true. Our spirit, our soul, longs to go to these places, and we know that that is true. But ultimately, it is a, it is a hope, uh, it is a faith, it is a trust that this destination on the right hand of God exists. So how do we get to that destination? Well, that's what, that's what faith is. In order to get to this destination that we haven't seen, we, have to ha we need a map. We need to have a, a path to get there. And that's what our faith is. Jesus Christ has uh, prescribed to us a map. He has told us, if you want to get back to the presence of God, I am the way, I am the life, I am the truth. He is the path to get there. And so if we believe in Christ, we follow the path that he has given to us 
that will lead us back to the destination that we are trying to get to, which is again, the presence of God. So faith is trusting in the map and hope is trusting in that destination. And so uh, in order to, uh, as Ether as, as Ether taught them, in order to arrive at that destination, we have to trust in the map, which hope cometh of faith, uh, which would make, make men sure and steadfast, always abounding in good works, being led to glorify God. So the map that we trust, in a, a critical part of that is good works, keeping the commandments, doing what God would have us do. And then the other part of that is glorifying God, his grace, his mercy, recognizing that uh, without him, we cannot get there. We cannot follow the map uh, except for his grace, except for uh, his mercy towards us. So Ether teaches them here that, you guys, you got to hope for a better world, something more than this world. And in order to get there, you have to trust God. You have to do what he teaches. You have to do good works and glorify him, not glorifying yourself, not trusting your own self or your own strength only to get you back there, but rather trusting that God can take you back there if you will but follow the map that he has given to us. Uh, but unfortunately, the Jaredites do not believe Ether, uh, and, and it's largely, we're told, because they couldn't see them. They couldn't see uh, the things that Ether was telling them. Uh, so they hoped for a better world in this life. To them, the idea that this better world at the right hand of God was going to come, that just seemed too far away. They, they couldn't trust that. And how many people do we know that are like that today? especially the irreligious type, and including many religious types. And of course, it's understandable, right? It's so easy to think, you know, let heaven take care of itself, let the afterlife take care of itself. We don't know exactly what the situation will be like, but we do know what our situation is like here. So let's focus on this world. Let's make sure we're comfortable in this world. Let's make this world the way that we want to make it. So we spend all of this time going out, working, striving to get more and more comforts for this world, and neglecting the things of the world to come. Uh, because we can't see it, because it's not right in front of us, because it's a destination that we have to hope for, that we have to trust that it's actually there uh, before we can even pursue it in the first place. And so that's a challenge that not only did the, did the Jaredites struggle with, uh, as Ether tried to teach them, but one that everyone struggles with, one that you and I struggle with, is making sure our focus, our destination is not in this world, making sure that we give priority to the things of the world to come, that our hope is for a better world at the right hand of God, not just a better world in the bigger house that we live in or in the nicer car that we have, or with our promotion, or with our vacations, or whatever it is in this world that we are pursuing, which are not necessarily bad, but we need to make sure that those are not where our hope lies. Our hope lies in the promise of Christ that through him, 
And because of the path that he has given us, we can return to the presence of our heavenly parents to be with them. And so we go down now to verse 6, where uh, Moroni uh, takes over. So the first few verses so far, he's been telling us what Ether, that great Jaredite prophet, has been teaching. But now Moroni says, all right, I'm going to put Ether aside for a minute. We're going to do a little bit of a detour. I, Moroni, am going to teach you about faith, starting in verse 6. And now I, Moroni, would speak somewhat concerning these things. I would show unto the world that faith is things which are hoped for and not seen. Wherefore, dispute not because ye see not, for ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. Now, of course, we can only exercise faith in things which are not seen. So this, this, this definition of faith that Moroni gives to us, um, in some ways, it's kind, of, it's kind of an obvious one. Faith is things which are hoped for and not seen. Of, of course, we can only exercise faith in things that we haven't seen. If we can see something, we don't need to exercise faith in it. If we could see God, our Heavenly Father, and Heavenly Mother sitting on their throne, preparing us, waiting for us with open arms, in some ways that would make it, that would undoubtedly make it so much easier for us to have faith in the path that leads us back to them. But we don't. We hope for that destination. We hope that it's there. We believe that it's there. We trust that it's there. We act accordingly, but we have not seen it. And so we must move forward exercising faith. Faith is things which are hoped for and not seen. Now, this idea of uh, not seen, I think, is an interesting one. If we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, it says, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So faith is things which are hoped for and not seen. And Paul teaches us that things which are not seen are things which are eternal. So again, it's this idea that we're not hoping for or putting our faith in things in this world that are temporal, that are physical, that are right in front of us. Our hope is in the things that are eternal. And that's where our faith is. It leads us on a map following on the way back to an eternal uh, reward, to returning to our eternal heavenly parents. These are things that are spiritual. They are not physical, which, you know, in some ways it's definitional. Uh, you know, of course, faith is things, is, is our faith is focused on things that are spiritual, but as you understand faith and as you think about faith, it is, there's many people in the world whose faith is only focused on those things that are temporal. And they do not have faith in those things that are eternal. And so they, as we just talked about, spend their time building up lives focused on the things that are temporal and neglecting the things that are eternal. And Moroni is telling us here, we cannot do that. We need to put our faith in things that are not seen things that are, uh, that are eternal. 
And so he tells us, dispute not because ye see not, for ye receive no witness until after the trial of our faith. So what is the trial of our faith? Well, there's many different ways to think about it. Uh, we learned in Alma chapter 32 that uh, in, in some ways you can think of faith as being a principle by principle uh, building blocks upon which we slowly gain our testimony of the whole gospel. And so maybe as we're trying to build our faith in, uh, in a certain gospel principle, whether it be uh, obedience or service or love, we'll have our, our faith in those principles will be tried. And as we make it through, our faith will increase and we'll see evidence that our faith was rewarded. But I think Moroni is thinking of this more uh, kind of holistically. Uh, the trial of our faith is this life. We came here to be tried, to have our faith tried. The whole purpose of this life, if, if faith is following a map, we came here to see whether or not we would follow the map. That is the trial of our faith. This life is that trial of our faith. And so we receive no witness until after the trial of our faith. In other words, brothers and sisters, don't expect to receive your witness that 100% confirmation while you are in this life. Because in this life, we still see through a glass darkly. We still struggle. We still have questions. And, you know, as much as we like to stand up and testimony meeting and say what we know with 100% conviction, I think sometimes we need to be a little bit humble uh, when we say those things. Of course, we believe those things. And we've had the Spirit bear witness to us of the truthfulness of many of those things. But do we know them? Do we really know them? Are we 100% certain? Or would it be better for us to be a little bit humble and say, there's a lot of things that I know. There's a lot of things that I believe. And these things that I believe are good. And I'm walking by faith here and I'm doing the absolute best that I can. But I recognize that the way that God has constructed this life is for me to walk by faith. To follow that map even though I don't see that destination yet. I have ideas of what it might be like. I study the scriptures. I build my relationship with God. And slowly he teaches me. He builds that hope. I get a fire within me that helps me to begin to put certain pieces together. And my expectations begin to increase. But at the same time, I'm still walking by faith. I'm still struggling. I'm still doing the best that I can to, to follow this map. And so we continue following the map without seeing our destination until we leave this world. And we will continue to do so. And we have to continue to do so. So I think it's important that we continue to remain humble. That we don't say, oh, I know the map. I know where to go. I know exactly what I'm doing. I know, I know, I know. No, we don't. We continue in faith. 
one step enough to see, we have just enough light to see where the next step is. We don't see the destination yet. It's not there. I'm sorry, it's not, it's not visible for us. It's not, it's not where we can actually see it. We know it's there, but the only light that we have is one step in front of us. And so we continue to walk by faith, uh, waiting for that day in which we will leave this life and then we will receive that witness, that knowledge, because we will return to the presence of God and we will be beside him. And that is what our faith is, believing in that great destination. Verse 8 and 9. But because of the faith of man, he has shown himself unto the world and glorified the name of the Father and prepared a way that thereby others might be partakers of the heavenly gift, that they might hope for those things which they have not seen. Wherefore, ye may also have hope and be partakers of the gift, if ye will but have faith. According to Moroni, there are men and women, we generally refer to them as prophets, who have in this life enjoyed the presence of God. They have partaken of that heavenly gift, uh, as it is called. And those men and women, having partaken of that heavenly gift, they can testify of the destination. And they can testify of the map that leads back to that destination so that we can have faith and that we can have hope so that those of us, like you and me, at least like me at least, um, that have not yet enjoyed the presence of God, at least certainly not while in this life, so that we can have more evidence that that destination is there, so that we can have more certainty to, to buoy up our faith and our hope so that we can put more trust in the destination and put more trust in the map so that we can continue along our paths with uh, greater diligence. If, you know, no one had enjoyed that, if, if you did not have people testifying of Christ and of that destination of our heavenly parents. Uh, and you know, Moroni gives the perfect, per, the perfect example is the brother of Jared, right? He, through his faith, saw the finger of the Lord, the veil parted, and he was brought back into the presence of God. And there have been others who have also enjoyed this heavenly gift, as Moroni calls it. They too have enjoyed the presence of God. And they provide their testimonies so that you and I can benefit from their testimonies, have increased faith in that destination to help us along, to encourage us, to help us know that uh, that destination is there, that we in fact do have loving heavenly parents that wait for us with open arms and look forward to, uh, to welcoming us home. Um, and so... Uh, these partakers of the heavenly gift, uh, they, have, they make it possible uh, that, that we might have this hope in things that we have not seen yet. Uh, 10 and 11. Behold, it was by faith that they of old were called after the holy order of God. Wherefore, by faith was the law of Moses given, 
But in the gift of his Son, God prepared a more excellent way, and it is by faith that it hath been fulfilled. So each of the paths that Moroni describes here uh, have the effect, uh, comes by, and requires faith. Each of these paths back into the presence of God, whether it be uh, through the holy order of God, whether it be the law of Moses, or of course, the more excellent way, the only way, which is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course, these first two paths, the holy order of God and the law of Moses, were all designed to bring us to Jesus Christ, he being the more excellent way, he being the only way, the only path, the only map that we can follow as we strive and struggle through this life to try to return to the presence of God. Verse 12, For if there be no faith among the children of men, God can do no miracle among them. Wherefore, he showed not himself until after their faith. So by definition, God cannot do anything miraculous or unexpected in our lives if we have to see the end before we are willing, even willing to act. So without faith, then, it'd be impossible for us to return to the presence of God. If we require that evidence to be right in front of us before we are even willing to move, even willing to act, and faith is a principle of action. Faith is what motivates us to take any action, to move forward. But if we require uh, evidence of that, uh, of that which we have hope in, of the presence of God, if we require proof that God is actually there waiting for us, there's no faith in that. There's no faith in that. We follow this map. We struggle through faith because we hope, because we have that hope in the destination that lies in front of us. And so God can't do anything miraculous until uh, we, we exercise faith in our lives. Because miracles, by definition, are those things which are unexpected. That's, that's what a miracle is. And so if we're not willing to act on faith, then how could we ever receive something other than what is exactly expected? In other words, if we're only going to move when we know what the end is going to be, how can God surprise us? How can God do a miracle in our lives? And of course, the greatest miracle is and always will be bringing us back into his presence forgiving us of our sins, cleansing us, making it possible for us to enjoy eternal life with him so that we can become like him. That is the greatest miracle. And it always will be the greatest miracle. And that is a miracle that requires faith. Because we can't see it right now, we cannot see God. We walk by faith. And if we not willing to move until we see that end in front of us, that miracle will never come. Think about it. If you were traveling on a path and you could see your destination in front of you, why would you need the map? You'd know exactly where it is and exactly how to get there. Sure, you might kind of struggle from here and there. Maybe the roads are windy, but eventually you would get there. But that's not how this life is set up. Our destination is one that we cannot see. Therefore, we are forced to have faith. We are forced to 
trust in the map, knowing that that greatest miracle is there waiting for us, or trusting, I should say, that that greatest miracle is there waiting for us. And so we move forward following the map that Christ has given to us, repenting of our sins, receiving sacred ordinances, uh, fulfilling the commandments of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because we trust that that great destination is there ahead of us. Uh, Verse 15. Yea, and even all they who wrought miracles wrought them by faith, even those who were before Christ and also those who were after. Apologize, that was verse 16. But again, any miracle comes about by faith. And again, this should be definitional. God wanting to do a miracle or unexpected, something unexpected on our lives it has to come by faith. It has, because, has to come because we were seeking after something which, we, which is not seen, which is not in front of us. And that's the only way a miracle can ever come about. And again, that's another reason why we need to be humble. We need to, I think, be uh, somewhat uh, circumspect and uh, recognize our own limitations as we talk about those things that we know. We have great things that we believe in. And God supports that faith and God supports those beliefs. But, but do we know how things are going to be? Our, our knowledge in the next life is so limited, so limited. But that allows us to have faith. If we knew every detail, if God were to come down and show you and I what it would be like, we would lose, that would, we would lose the whole purpose of this life. The whole purpose is to walk by faith because we cannot see the destination. So we just simply have to trust the map at this point. So Moroni then goes on to recount the different miracles that have been formed, that were performed by various Book of Mormon heroes. Um, And, you know, before we see a miracle with our eyes, Moroni tells us that we first have to see it with an eye of faith, because that's how they did it. We have this it's an interesting concept, the eye, the eye of faith, this idea that we can see things that aren't seen. We, we picture them in our minds. We, we believe that we're there. We start to formulate these ideas of what's possible. And then we move towards that goal, trusting that it's there. And it is only as we do so that we exercise faith and that that brings about miracles. And then from there, interestingly, Moroni begins to express concern about how weak his writing is, which I, which I did find interesting because, you know, I certainly see no indication that Moroni is an inferior writer. Uh, and of course, this is all translated anyway. So we're not actually getting his original words from as they came out of his hand. It's all been translated uh, through the prophet Joseph Smith by the power of God. So it's really hard for us to say, you know, if Moroni is a good writer or not, uh, you know, what a, something you know, very interesting for him to be concerned about. But I think, I wonder if his concern is that because um, we don't really have a record of Moroni doing a great miracle. You know, he's just given this great lecture on faith, talked about how faith is critical for miracles to take place. And then he goes through this long list of Book of Mormon heroes <clears throat> who have performed certain miracles. He talks about Alma and Amulek. He talks about Nephi and Lehi. He talks about Ammon converting the Lamanites. He talks about the three Nephites. He goes through this list of 
these Book of Mormon heroes, these prophets that have done great miracles. And then he probably looks at his own life and says, you know, I haven't done much. My father and I, we tried to teach repentance to the people, but they didn't listen to us, and so they got destroyed. We weren't able to save them. We weren't able to do a miracle for them. And my father died, and here I am running around trying to avoid the Nephites so they don't, or the Lamanites so they don't kill me. Now I'm just struggling to copy down a few kind of last-minute remarks with the hope that someday somebody will read it. Nothing miraculous about that. Now, of course, we sit, you know, 1,600 years removed and think, my goodness, Moroni, what you did is completely miraculous. You, you buried this book and then you later came back as an angel and delivered it. So we all have this amazing record, this, this incredible testimony of Christ. But to Moroni, it very well could be that he didn't think he did anything that was very miraculous. Certainly nothing compared to the other great Book of Mormon prophets. And so he starts to be a little bit self-conscious that, you know, how, how does he measure up to these other prophets? He, he's concerned that he can't. Um, and then we get the great verse 27. And if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. I give unto men weakness that they may be humble. And my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. So I think Moroni learns here as he's struggling to accept his own situation. A lesson that all of us need. Our comparison is not to other people. As we try to size up ourselves and see how important we are, the great things that we probably wish we have done, but we look at our lives and think, gosh, I haven't done very much. Nothing miraculous here, just kind of a boring old life. Our comparison is not to the other great prophets within these stories. Because it says here, if men come unto me, I will show them their weakness. Our comparison is to Jesus Christ. And as we come into him, he shows us our weakness. And it's interesting to note that this verse does not mean, does not say weaknesses. I think often we, you know, the most common interpretation of this verse is, you know, we all have our weaknesses. If we come unto Christ, he reveals them to us. And if we work hard, those weaknesses become strengths. Yeah, great lesson. You can read something similar in just about every other self-help book. You learn your weaknesses, you work hard, you overcome them. Of course, this adds the element of, uh, of Christ and his atonement, which is, of course, important. Um, but, you know, as, as, I, as I think about this, I'm just wondering, is there, is there something more here? And, I, and again, I, I can't help but think Moroni is feeling a little bit self-conscious as I, as I read, uh, you know, his, his struggle to, his concerns about whether will people, people will accept his writing how he stacks up as a, as a prophet. And, and his conclusion is, don't compare yourself to others. Come unto Jesus Christ. And when we realize how weak our faith is compared to Christ, that makes us humble. And that humility qualifies us for grace. That humility 
is something that we need. So again, I've spoken about several times in this lesson already. <coughs> As we testify, I think we need a little bit of humility. I think we need to recognize that we do not have it all figured out. We don't see the whole picture yet. We see enough for us to continue to move forward. We see what the Lord wants us to see. But our vision is weakness. Our vision is limited. Our faith is weak. Everything about us at this point is weak. So I think our testimonies of what we know and what we're certain about should similarly be weak, should similarly be humble. Now, I am not saying do not testify and say that you believe in Christ and of the miraculous things that he's done for you in your life. Of course, I hope that you're able to do that. I hope that as you are humble, you will look around at your life and take the lesson that Moroni learned. And even though it seems like your life is not especially miraculous and that you haven't really done anything amazing like the brother of Jared or like Alma and Amulek or any of the, these other great scripture prophets, or maybe you haven't been called to a great calling like your bishop or someone else in your ward. Or, or maybe you don't have the perfect family like someone else seems to. Stop all those comparisons and be humble. Compare yourself to Christ. And as you come unto him, you'll recognize your own weakness. You'll recognize your own limitation. You'll recognize your own lack of faith. And that humility qualifies you for grace, giving you the strength that you need as you come unto Christ. He helps the destination come into focus. And our destination is not what other people are doing. That's why we can't compare ourselves with other people. Our destination is not to have a family like that family in our ward. Our destination is not to be called to the calling that our friend has that we wish we had. Our, our destination is not to have the house that our neighbor has that seems so much nicer and more wonderful than ours. All of those things are, are good goals. We want to do the best that we can, but our ultimate destination is the presence of God. And as we come unto Christ, that destination comes into clarity. And then we see our own weakness. We see how far away we are from that destination. We still see how much struggling we had to have ahead of us on that map. And then we become humble. And with that humility, we qualify for the grace of God, which is the only way to get to the destination where God wants us to go. So those are all critical. Verse 28. Behold, I will show unto the Gentiles their weakness, and I will show unto them that faith, hope, and charity bringeth unto me the fountain of all righteousness. So the way to Christ, again, is not to compare our faith to others, but through our own sacrifice of faith, hope, and charity. <clears throat> And, of course, we'll talk a lot more about those in two weeks as we discuss uh, Moroni chapter 7. Uh, verses 32 and 34, through 34. 
And I also remember that thou hast said that thou hast prepared a house for man, yea, even among the mansions of thy father, in which man might have a more excellent hope. Wherefore man must hope, or he cannot receive an inheritance in the place which thou hast prepared. And again, I remember that thou hast said that thou hast loved the world, even unto the laying down of thy life for the world, that thou mightest take it again to prepare a place for the children of men. And now I know that this love which thou hast had for the children of men is charity. Wherefore, except men shall have charity, they cannot inherit that place which thou hast prepared in the mansions of thy father. So I I love this idea of Christ prepares for us a mansion in the houses of our father, of our father in heaven, of our heavenly parents, in the presence of God. Now, my mansion that God, Christ is preparing for me is going to be different from your mansion. And it's going to be different from your bishop's mansion. It's going to be different from your neighbor's mansion. Again, our destinations are all in the presence of God. But we all have our own unique paths to get there because our mansions are all a little bit different. Our rewards are all a little bit different. God's intentions and destinations for all of us are all a little bit different. So we can't compare our weaknesses to other people's strengths or perceived strengths. We focus on ourselves. We come unto Christ. He reveals unto us where our weakness is. He shows how weak we are, how weak our faith is, how little we know. And then that humility qualifies us for God's grace. And that grace motivates us and pushes us and inspires us and leads us back to the mansion that Christ is preparing for us. And so I I think it's lovely to think that Christ is not only the path, he is not only the way back to the presence of God, he is also the one that is preparing the destination. So Christ prepares the map and Christ prepares the destination. Christ is our faith, our source of faith. Christ is what our faith is rooted in. And Christ is also the one at the destination waiting for us, encouraging us, preparing it for us. Christ is all along this journey back to the presence of our heavenly parents. He loves us. That is what charity is. He wants nothing more for us to return to the presence of God. That is what charity is. That great love that he has for us. And that love must motivate everything that we do. Every step that we take along this path. If it is going to count. If it is going to be a step in the right direction. Any step taken without charity might as well just slip and fall backwards. Charity is the only way in which we can move forward along this path. And if we lack charity, we cannot move forward. Because that is what Christ has. Christ moves us forward. He is the map. He is at the destination, cheering us along because of that great charity which he has. Uh, And that, brothers and sisters, is Ether chapter 12. Uh, We move on to chapter 13 then. So Ether teaches them about the promised land and a new Jerusalem. 
which is interesting, right? I mean, if you're going out and trying to motivate the people to repent, just again, that's an interesting approach to, to try to say, hey, 2,000 years from now, there's going to be a, a new Jerusalem built upon this continent. Um, but you can see what he's doing. He's trying to show them the destination. He's trying to show them what they could become. He's trying to, 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 to give them this vision of what's possible, of where they can head. And this new Jerusalem is what they should be, should be going for. Um, so with that, uh, let's read verses 6 through 8. And that a new Jerusalem should be built upon this land unto the remnant of the seed of Joseph, for which things there has been a type. For as Joseph brought his father down into the land of Egypt, when so, even so he died there. Wherefore the Lord brought a remnant of the seed of Joseph out of the land of Jerusalem, that he might be merciful unto the seed of Joseph, that they might perish not, even as he was merciful unto the father of Joseph, that he should perish not. Wherefore the remnant of the house of Joseph shall be built upon this land, and it shall be a land of their inheritance, and they shall build up a holy city unto the Lord, like unto the Jerusalem of old, and they shall no more be confounded until the end come when the earth shall pass away. Now, I kind of question here how much of this is actually what Ether taught, and how much of this is what Moroni taught, because Moroni was obviously aware of the old Jerusalem from which Lehi came, but Ether would not have been. Ether's, you know, the Jaredites came long before, uh, you know, long before Jerusalem was even built. So they, they wouldn't have known anything about, about this Jerusalem. But there's an interesting parallel between uh, the story of Joseph and uh, the Lehites, the, the, the Book of Mormon story. Um, and it's important to understand because there's several places, and Lehi goes into this as well when he's blessing his son Joseph, uh, wh where this comparison is made. And the comparison is, just as Joseph was separated from his family and brought into a strange land, and he dwelled there, and he prospered there, it made it possible so that at a future date, because he was separated from them, he was able to save them when uh, disaster struck them. Now, in the same way, Lehi and his family were separated from the house of Israel. And the promise is at a later day, when that house of Israel is in danger, Lehi's family, their testimony, their record, even the Book of Mormon, will be what saves the house of Israel, or at least will be a critical part of that. So the Nephites have long viewed themselves as being similar in similitude of Joseph and his family. Now, of course, Ether would not have known this because the Jaredites came over um, before uh, Joseph, be, before uh, Isaac and Joseph uh, were around. So, so unless, you know, revealed to them, this is something, a history they would not have had. So I think Moroni is probably elaborating quite a bit uh, on some of Ether's teachings. But I think the point is what Ether is teaching is he's trying to set for them this vision trying to help them see this destination that is possible. And for them, this destination is this new Jerusalem where the righteous are gathered together in the presence of God, where God leads them and where they can enjoy peace and enjoy the presence and the blessings of God. He's trying to set that destination for them. Uh, verses 10 through 11. 
And then cometh the new Jerusalem, and blessed are they who dwell therein, for it is they whose garments are white through the blood of the Lamb, and they are they who are numbered among the remnant of the seed of Joseph, who were of the house of Israel. And then also cometh the Jerusalem of old, and the inhabitants thereof, blessed are they, for they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, and they are they who were scattered and gathered in from the four quarters of the earth, and from the north countries, and are partakers of the fulfilling of the covenant which God made with their father, Abraham. So Moroni elaborates a little bit upon, uh, uh, upon this idea of uh, old Jerusalem and new Jerusalem. Um, and I think it's, just want to say, I think it's important for us to get away from this idea that these are actual physical cities. They might be, but from what it's described here, I, I'm not sure that they are, because the qualification for being in a citizen of this new Jerusalem is that your garments are white through the blood of the lamb. It's not a place you can just move to. It's a, it's a, it's a community that you join because you have entered into covenants with the lamb of God, where your, where your sins are washed away because of his blood. And so I think it is rather than being an actual physical city, I think it's something more akin to a church think it's probably the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which was established on this continent. I'm not sure then exactly what the old Jerusalem will symbolize here, but again, I'm, I'm pretty convinced it's something more than just a city. Regardless, uh, Ether tells them, uh, tells the Jaredites, tells his people, uh, especially Coriantumr, that they have to repent or they are going to be destroyed. But they don't listen, and they keep fighting. Secret combinations come in, and uh, massive death ensues. Uh, verses 1 and 2. And now there began to be a great curse upon all the land. Sorry, chapter 14, verse 1 and 2. And now there began to be a great curse upon all the land because of the iniquity of the people, in which if a man should lay down his tool or his sword upon his shelf, or upon the place whither he would keep it, Behold, upon the morrow he could not find it, so great was the curse upon the land. Wherefore every man did cleave unto that which was his own with his hands, and would not borrow, neither would he lend. And every man kept the hilt of his sword on, in his right hand, in the defense of his property, and his own life, and of his wives and children. That sounds horrible. And this is not the first time we've seen this curse uh, in the Book of Mormon. I can think of at least two other instances in which we, we read that their uh, possessions became slippery and that they could not keep them. And this is a third time. So this is the third time we've seen this curse upon the land, probably something we should, we should pay attention to exactly what it means. And what I can come up with is we talked earlier about this idea of Jerusalem just a few minutes ago, this new Jerusalem. Everyone is washed in the blood of the lamb. It represents being in the presence of God. It represents the celestial order. But here we have the exact opposite, the polar opposite. As, as I think of the celestial kingdom, I, again, trying to be humble here in my understanding, but I imagine it as a place in which all have charity, in which all enjoy the grace and blessings of Jesus Christ. And so we love one another. We interact with one another. We take care of each other. We share with each other. It is a place of great trust and great love, 
great openness and great happiness. And what we have described here is the exact opposite of that. You cannot keep anything because everyone around you is trying to steal your stuff. And so you get possessive of your stuff. You get defensive of your own property and of your own life. And you're not able to go about enjoying life because you're so worried that what you have is going to be taken away from you. This is the exact opposite of the celestial kingdom. This is literally hell. This is what hell is like. It's the exact opposite. And that is the environment that the Jaredites found themselves in. And they're not the first account that we have of this hell within the Book of Mormon. But again, Ether tried to give them a vision of something higher, something better. They rejected that vision. And so they have descended into this hell. Uh, so in chapter 14, the fighting and the continue and the killing continues. Uh, Chapter 15, Coriantumr realizes that uh, it's all going to end very poorly and that he's going to be the last man standing as Ether prophesied. Uh, and he wants to end it. He says, no, this is nuts. Let's stop the killing. He writes to Shiz, the, the leader of the other side. But everyone by this point is too far gone. No one is willing to stop. Uh, so interestingly, it says in, verse, uh, in chapter 15, uh, verse 14, that they spend four years gathering everybody together for this final battle. Well, I'm, you know, I'm kind of thinking, I, I'm questioning whether or not it was actually four years. Four, of course, is a number of completeness. I think what they're trying to say here is that everybody was involved. They spent as long as they needed to finding everyone that they could to come to this final battle. It was complete. Everybody was there. Everyone except Ether, of course, who was hiding in the rock, uh, acting as the silent witness. And then we have this terrible account in verse, uh, verses 16 and 17. And it came to pass that when it was night, they were weary and retired to their camps. And after they had retired to their camps, they took up a howling and a lamentation for the loss of the slain of their people. And so great were their cries, their howlings, and their lamentations that they did rend the air exceedingly. And it came to pass that on the morrow they did go again to battle, and great and terrible was that day. Nevertheless, they conquered not. And when the night came again, they did rend the air with their cries and their howlings and their mournings for the loss of the slain of their people. God, this sounds so terrible, doesn't it? They, at night, they spend their time crying because they're killing each other. And then they wake up the next day and they continue killing each other. Um, again, it's, it's fascinating that they're doing this. I think it's worth thinking about, though, do we do the same thing with our own sins? How often do we spend our nights praying to God for, to help us become better? And then we spend our days going back to the same sins. So we should have some charity towards uh, these people and their weakness weaknesses, um, while recognizing our own uh, weaknesses. Uh, but again, this is, seems to me that this is a, a, a description of what hell would be like. And they literally fight until everybody is dead. Everybody except Coriantumr. He is the last man standing after he cuts off the head of Shiz. And then Ether comes down, uh, and that is the end of the Jaredite record. Uh, terrible, tragic story. We hear millions of people are killed. They descend into hell. So we started this lesson with 
you know, the promise of hope for a better world at the right hand of God. And the Jaredite record ends with their descent into hell. Uh, I think great lessons for us to, to take away from that. We need to keep that destination, that heavenly destination, in the presence of our heavenly parents in mind at all times. Knowing that that is where we are going. And we trust the map that is given to us by Jesus Christ, following it through faith every day, even though we see through a glass darkly, trying, struggling each day to keep the commandments of God as we prepare and move towards their presence, all made possible by Jesus Christ. I pray that we will keep that destination in mind every day as we struggle to follow the map led by the light of Christ, and I do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.